Neither Chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femfatale Natalie, is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. Here's your disclaimer, Chatters. The following Crime Chat contains adult content and descriptions of potentially maybe violent scenarios today, so your listener discretion is advised. You've been warned, and before we get into today's Crime Chat, Kat, what have you done? You know, I've been living the busy life. Uh, <laughs> I've got school that I'm in. I started new class teaching. I've got contract work that I've been doing. So things have been going a little crazy, but I did manage to watch a movie. Now, uh-huh. this is going to be like a throwback to season one, episode okay. 21, Crash on the Andes. Do you remember that? Yes. And remember, we talked about the movie Alive. Yes. Okay. So there's a new movie out on Netflix about the Uruguayan Uruguayan rugby team Mm -hmm. who they they crashed on the Andes. There was only 16 out of the original 45 on board that survived. They survived for 72 days in unbelievably freezing temperatures. So go back Mm -hmm. and listen to episode 21 to find out all the deets on that. But wow good this yes now it was dubbed over in english it looks like it was recorded originally in spanish so if you could get past the dubbing (laughs) the cinematography and the drama in it was fantastic really so highly recommend it it's called society of the snow i'll check it out it's new it just came out a few days ago so it's pretty new but it's so good. Like, if you can get past the dubbing, <laughs> they do have – so it's dubbed over in English. Anytime they speak in Spanish, they do have the translation, you know, listed on there. Fantastic. Like I said, cinematography and the drama and the emotion that's in it. It's, yeah. It was really, really good. I thought they were going to get into – if you remember from the episode that we covered after – they were rescued. There was a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism over the fact that they had to eat other people who had passed to survive. Yeah. And uh-huh. was it a form of cannibalism? Whereas it's not because it's a it's a survival thing, right? It's uh-huh. not like they were getting pleasure out of eating it. And, it, and if you remember, they were ap- absolutely tormented by the fact that it had to kind of come down to that. Yeah. Uh, so, But they did not get into that portion of it, which is good. But it was so good. I recommend it. Like, it was it was heart-wrenching. Even though I knew the story, I got into the details. Like, I researched that story, watched Alive again, and, you know, did all the research and stuff for doing that story. Back in season one, it was just a whole new picture brought up yeah. about it. So it was really, really good. I will check that out. What about you? I haven't done anything besides de-Christmas my house. I've taken my Christmas down as well, but I'm still waiting for – Chris to get the boxes out of the attic so I can pack it all up. So right oh. now it's like all in my dining room, <laughs> like on the dining room oh. table. My tree is still up because I have it. I need the ornament boxes to like take the ornaments off and everything. But other than that, like the outside's taken down, like all the other decorative stuff is all taken down. I'm just waiting to take the next step to put it in the attic. <laughs> right, right. I have considered leaving my tree up and just doing the like monthly themes. Oh, a lot yeah. of people do that. Actually, my da- my daughter-in-law got a black Christmas tree from her mom uh-huh. gifted for Christmas. And she said she's going to keep it up all year uh-huh. and do that. And, like, do decorate it for, like, 
every month, like whatever the, the theme is for the month. So wait, so when your birthday rolls around, is she going to put pictures of you all over the Christmas she, Well, tree? it'll be me and her because we have the same birthday month. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it'll be Libra's every taken over. Well, I'm not sure what your case is covering today. We, Of course, we don't spoil it for each other. But you did ask me to do an introduction on ransoms. Yes. Yeah. So I put a list together of 10 of the most notable kidnapping that had a ransom note with it. Okay. So number one, Charlie Ross, July 1st, 1874 in Philadelphia. Two men kidnapped the little boy with the promise of buying him and his brother candy. The kidnappers demanded $20,000 in the ransom, which was a lot in 1874. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And the case became the crime of the century. Charlie Ross was the primary victim of the first American kidnapping for ransom to receive widespread media coverage. His fate remains unknown, and his case is one of the most famous disappearances in U.S. history. Oh, so he's never been found? Never been found. Mm -mm. Oh. Oh, that's terrible. Number two, Bobby Franks, May 21st, 1924 in Chicago. The 14-year-old son of a millionaire vanished, leaving an after-school baseball game. The next day, the Franks family received a ransom note demanding $10,000 for the boy's safe return. Two young men from affluent families are arrested and claim they committed the crime to demonstrate their perceived intellectual superiority. So number three is Marion Parker, but we're going to get into that. Okay. (laughs) Number four, Charles Lindbergh Jr. March 1st, 1932 in New Jersey. The baby son of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh is kidnapped from a second floor nursery at the family's farmhouse in New Jersey. For months, the Lindbergh make multiple attempts to meet ransom demands. Of course, we do know that the child did not make it. Yeah. Number five, Brooke Hart, November 9th, 1933 in California. The eldest son of the most prominent businessman in San Jose, California, is reported missing after he fails to pick up his father to drive him to a Chamber of Commerce meeting. After ransom demands are made, two suspects are arrested and confess to the crime, leading an angry lynch mob to seek justice. Number six, Dorothy Ann Distelhurst. September 19, 1934, in Nashville. The Distelhurst family is bombarded with ransom letters after their daughter, Dorothy, never makes it home from kindergarten. The letters threaten to burn out the little girl's eyes with acid if the $5,000 ransom is not met. Unfortunately, Dorothy would not be found alive. On November 13, 1934, Dorothy's lifeless body was found underground in a casket by hospital workers. Her clothes and lunchbox were found 20 feet away. An an autopsy report concluded Dorothy had been dead for weeks. Her skull was fractured, most likely by a hammer. So that one sounds like a really interesting one to do on a future crime chat. Number seven, Charles Matson. December 27, 1936, in Tacoma. A masked man armed with a handgun abducts 10-year-old Charles from the living room of his home. The boy's father, a well-known physician and surgeon in the area, makes every attempt to reach the kidnapper and pay the $20,000 ransom for the boy's safe return. I don't think he made it back either. Aww. Number eight, Bobby Greenlease. September 25, 1953, in Kansas City. The 6-year-old son of a prominent Missouri... See, uh, I said it right. Missouri. Car dealer is kidnapped from school by a woman posing to be his aunt. 
attempts are made to pay the exorbitant six hundred thousand dollars mm. in 1953. I didn't do the time money. That's converter, a but lot of money. Okay, that's a lot. Half which was stolen by a corrupt police officer. Wow. Mm. Number nine, Frank Sinatra Jr. We talked about him on a previous crime chat. Yes. December 8th, 1963 in Lake Tahoe. The 19-year-old singer and son of legendary crooner Frank Sinatra was taken prisoner by two men pretending to deliver a package to his dressing room. He's blindfolded and held in a Los Angeles hideout while a third conspirator contacts the singer's famous father and demands a $240,000 ransom. He did make it out alive, Uh right? Uh Yeah, yeah, I thought so. And number 10... One of the most famous, John Benet Ramsey, yeah. December 25th, 1966. The case was widely, widely televised and suspicion fell on the parents, John and Patsy Ramsey, who denied having anything to do with John Benet's death. John Benet was only six years old when she was found dead in the basement of her parents' home the following day. Flashback, chatters, go back to season one, episode six. We did cover John Benet Ramsey 25 years after her passing. So yeah. that's a quick list on some of some of there were so many yeah (laughs) but some of the most notable kidnappings that had like a ransom note with it or yeah i guess deaths that had ransom notes associated to it it seems like um they all are also children that didn't make it back i think a majority of them did not Mm. yeah and it's like i think well another one that i found which i caught i could have also listed on here Mm -hmm. if you remember the little girl from the lipstick killer episode that we did one of the crime and cosmetics the little girl that they left a ransom note in the little girl's room Mm -hmm. but this was also when like the press were contaminating the crime scene and taking pictures of everything while the police were literally there Mm -hmm. you know combing for clues and and invest part of the investigation so Mm. yeah it was a different time back then that so but the lipstick killer was also listed on on one of them wow that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it's not going to get any better, Kat. All right. Thank you for that intro. Well, <laughs> Setting you to set in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my case today is about the murder that shook the nation, the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. Mm-hmm. On December 15th, 1927, 12-year-old Marion Parker and her twin sister were headed to school at Mount Vernon Elementary School in Los Angeles. Marjorie was the girly girl and Marion was the tomboy, Mm -hmm. but the pair was very, very close. The girl's mom, Geraldine Parker, was a homemaker and their father, Perry Parker, was a cashier at the First National Trust and Savings Bank. I don't know why, but I love the name Perry. Me too. I think it's it's just like a very classic name. Yeah, great name. I I think it's a fantastic name. We should bring that name back. Yes, we should. On December 15, 1927, the girls attended school like any other day. Mm-hmm. However, the school was short-staffed this day because the principal had been out that morning and Mary mm-hmm. Hall, who was normally in charge of attendance, but this time she kind of put her in charge of student service desk. Sure. Around noon, a neatly dressed man entered the school and approached Mary Holt at her desk and he introduced himself as Mr. Cooper. He told Mary that he worked with Perry Parker at the bank and Perry Parker had been 
been in a horrible car accident. And he was there to pick up his daughter. Miss Holt was a little confused because she knew that you mean daughters, right? Yeah, you mean both of them? <laughs> right. And instead of just like asking questions without giving information, mm-hmm. she didn't do that. She's like, well, which daughter are you here for? The younger one or the older one? Oh, Lord. He was like, I'm here for the younger one. And she said, oh, you're here for Marion. Remember, they're twins. But Marion was born last. Miss Holt sent out a pass, and mm-hmm. when Marion showed up, without hesitation, without question, Mary just handed Marion off to this man. And Marion looked at this well-dressed man, who didn't seem threatening at the time, mm-hmm. and she was in a little bit of shock because her dad was just in an accident. Yeah. Nobody even asked, like, all right, why are you here just to pick up one daughter? What about the other one? Yeah. Right. Shouldn't the other one go as well? Seems a little off. Yeah. As a, a good kid, she did what the adults in the room told her to do. And she Mm -hmm. went with this man. The principal returned to the school later that day and she was informed of Mr. Parker's accident. Mm -hmm. But the principal never followed up with the family, police, or the the older sister. Well, I'm going to say older. She's she's literally a minute older. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The twin. Yeah, the twin sister. She never followed up in in any way. At the end of the school day, Marjorie, she went to her bus stop. She was waiting for Marion to show up. Every day they would get the bus together. Mm Mm-hmm. Marion didn't show up. Instead of going back into the school and asking why, she just saw her bus coming and she got on the bus because she was nervous about being late getting home. Right, right. When she first got home, she immediately told her parents, Marion wasn't at the bus today going home and mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Parker were not alarmed at first because back then it was common for students to stay late to help teachers clean up. Do you remember okay. those days? Yeah. I remember those days. Yeah. They figured she'll be on the next bus, but when Marion was not on the next bus, Perry decided to call the school and ask where she was and when she would be coming home. Mm-hmm. Well, Miss Holt answered the phone and Miss Holt was surprised to hear his voice. She said, well, how are you, Mr. Parker? I heard about your accident today. And the man you sent from work, Mr. Cooper, came by to pick up Marion. So I don't know why she's not home. Mm-hmm. And Perry's like, wait a minute. Okay, as a, as, as a parent, I would be freaking out at this moment. <laughs> so Perry's like, wait, number one, there was no car accident. Number two, I didn't even go to work today because today was his fourth. 40th birthday. Oh. And number three, I don't know a Mr. Cooper. Was it D.B. Cooper? That's what my mind keeps going <laughs> yeah, to is like D.B. Cooper. Oh, that's another crime chat we have to do. I know. Perry hung up the phone and before he could dial the police, the doorbell rang. It was Western Union with a telegram. The message stated, do positively nothing till you receive a special delivery letter. It was signed by Marion. Mm. The Parkers decide to wait for the next letter and not to call police. A couple of hours later, a second telegram showed up. It stated, Marion secured. Use good judgment. Dot, dot, dot. Interference with my plans. Dot, dot, dot. Dangerous. And the letter was signed by a George Fox. Mm -hmm. The Parkers decided to wait till the next morning to contact police. Still, I don't know how you do something like this. Like this would just, well, I guess today you automatically would call the police. But I guess back then, I I don't, would you call the police? I would always call the police. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was a different society, like like a norm, like a cultural norm back then. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't. I mean, that was only a 
I want to say only like a century ago. (laughs) (laughs) But even if they didn't call the police, I think that the school, knowing that they may may have made a mistake, the Mm -hmm. police should know what's going on right now. I'm Mm -hmm. sure the police knew something. Yeah. The police arrived at the house early the next morning when the Parkers called to interview the Parkers. But during the interviews, ding dong, the doorbell, a third telegram came knocking. Mm -hmm. This delivery had two messages. The first one stated, Parker, use good judgment. You're the loser. Do this. Secure $75, $20 gold certificates, U.S. currency, $1,500 at once. Keep them on your person. Go about your daily business as usual. Leave police and detectives out. Make no public notice. Keep this affair private. Make no search. Fulfill these terms. will secure the return of the girl. Failure to comply with these requests means no one will ever see the girl again except the angels in heaven. Mm. The affair must end one way or the other. Within three days, 72 hours, you will receive further notice. But the terms remain the same. This time it was signed, fate. Mm -hmm. The second telegram read, Dear Daddy and Mother, I wish I could come home. I think I'll die if I have to be like this much longer. Won't someone tell me why this has happened to me? Daddy, please do what this man tells you or he'll kill me if you don't. Signed, Marion Parker. Did, and they conf- they confirmed that was her writing that? No. Oh, okay, 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 okay. But yeah, it wasn't okay. her. <sighs> okay. I know, I know. Police and the Parkers agreed to keep the story out of the press. So the mm-hmm. kidnapper thought that the instructions were being followed. Right. One thing that troubled police was the ransom. It was low, like really low. And although the Parkers were not a rich family, the only connection Parker had with a lot of money was that the fact that he worked at a bank as a cashier. Right. Yeah. But $1,500 in 1920 is the equivalent to about 24000 mm-hmm. today, which just seems like not a lot of money for a ransom. Right. The Parkers were a normal family, normal friends, no real enemies, and of course were not rich. Mm-hmm. The investigators also went to the Mount Vernon School to meet with Miss Holtz. She gave the police the following description of Mr. Krupper. He was between 25 and 30 years old, 150 pounds, height was about 5'8", and he was well-dressed with dark brown hair. The police and the Parkers decided to withdraw the 1500 from the bank. They logged all the serial numbers from mm-hmm. each bill in order mm-hmm. to track it. Mm-hmm. Perry arrived at work for his normal shifts, following each detail on the instructions from the telegram, mm-hmm. and after a full work day, Perry went home at 8 p.m. The phone rang. The person stated, Mr. Parker, do you have the money? Perry replied, yes. The man gave Perry instructions to drive to Gramercy and 10th and park his car. Mm -hmm. Perry drove to the meeting point, but he did not notify detectives that he was going to go to meet the kidnappers, worried that this may derail the plan to get his daughter Uh, back. uh... I know. They really didn't need him to tell them. They know. I feel bad for him because he just wanted to get his daughter back. I mean, but like, but what would you do? Like, we've kidnapped this person that you love or that you hold near and dear yeah don't involve the police mm. give us this amount of money or we're gonna hurt this person that you love yeah oh, i don't know it's hard it's really I hard i think the former investigator of me would contact police because yeah. you never know i mean and not to say that you you wish anything of that loved one's demise but they're probably dead anyway yeah 
Yeah. You know, and nine times out of 10, they're going to, but you don't, I mean, you don't know, but I, it would, it's a risk personally that I would take, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Yeah. Once he was there, he sat in his car till about 11.45 p.m. No kidnapper, no Marion, nothing. Mm. Perry raced back home, but to Perry's surprise, the police did know that he went to the drop off and mm. they tailed him the whole time. Sure. I, yeah, I could see that too. <laughs> yeah. He became enraged. He felt that this was the reason why he didn't have his daughter in his arms right now. Mm-hmm. The police decided to contact the press this time. Maybe they would have more luck. And on December 17th, the kidnapping of Marion Parker was all over the national news outlets. Mm-hmm. A new telegram arrived that day with an additional two letters. The first stated, Parker, when I asked you over the phone to give me your word of honor as a Christian and an honest businessman not to tip the police, you didn't answer. Why? Because two cars carefully following your car north on Wilton to 10th and stopped shortly off Wilton and proceeded to circle the block on Gramercy, I knew. And you knew. What for? Mr. Parker, I'm ashamed of you. You'll never know how you disappointed your daughter. She was so eager to know that it would be only a short while before she would be free from my terrible torture. And then you messed up the whole damn affair. How can the newspapers get all these family and private pictures unless you gave it to them. This continues after you received my strict warnings. Today is the last day. I mean Saturday, December 17th, 1927. I have cut the time to two days and only one more time will I phone you. If by 8 p.m. today you have not received my call, then hold a quiet funeral service at your cemetery without the body. Oh, damn. When I call, I'll tell you where to go and how to go. Don't have your friends following. Pray to God for forgiveness and for your mistake last night. If you don't come in good, clean, honest way and be square with me, that's all. This time, the letter was signed Fate Fox. So you had George Fox, Fate, and then Fate Fox. Right. The second letter was signed by Marion. It stated, (laughs) Dear Daddy and Mother, Daddy, please don't bring anyone with you today. I'm sorry for what happened last night. We drove right by the house. I cried the whole time last night. If you don't meet us this morning, you'll never see me again. Love to all, Marion Parker. P.S. Please, Daddy, I want to come home this morning. This is your last chance. Be sure to come by yourself or you won't see me again, Marion. The detectives worked with Parker to plan the next move and not to piss off this guy. But during this, Perry's family received two more telegrams. Mm -hmm. The first one, Parker, please recover your senses. I want your money rather than to kill your child. But so far, you've given me no other alternative. Of course, you want your child, but you'll never get her by notifying the police and causing all this publicity. I feel, however, that you have started the search before you received my warning. So I am not blaming you for the bad beginning. Be sensible and use good judgment. You can't deal with a mastermind like a common crook or kidnapper. Signed, Fox Fate. (laughs) Fate Fox and Fox Fate. Yeah. The second letter, Parker. Fox is my name. Very sly, you know. (laughs) Set no traps. Fox is my name. Kidnaps my game. Yeah. I'll watch for them. Get this straight. Remember, life hangs by a thread. I have a Gillette ready and I'm able to handle the situation. Signed, Fate. Mm. At this point, there are questions about these telegrams, right? So here's a little history Mm -hmm. about telegrams. So the electric telegraph was invented by Samuel Morse in 1830. Morse developed the Morse code, which assigned a series of dots and dashes to each letter in the alphabet to serve as a language 
for the telegraph. Telegrams reached their peak of popularity in like the 1920s and the 1930s, which is when the story Mm -hmm. is taking place. It was much cheaper to send a telegram than to place a long distance phone call or even, I guess, a stamp. In the 1920s, people would send telegrams by visiting their local telegraph office and filling Mm -hmm. out the form with the message that they wish to send. The message would then be transmitted electronically along the telegraph wires to the intended address. From there, it would be hand-delivered. In the 1920s, the telegram did not have like a sender field. Western Union did not require some type of ID or driver's license to send one. So like who it was coming from, they didn't always know who exactly it was coming from, but just like a region from the sending Western Union. Right. The message may include a sender's name or didn't have to include a sender's name. Telegrams only really highlighted the county or the surrounding areas. So it was very hard back then to trace a telegram. Mm -hmm. You were also able to call one in. So you didn't even have to physically be there. I mean, but wouldn't they have to pay for it? Like, like, put it on my account. You know, wouldn't that account have to go to a name? (laughs) I would think so. I don't know. (laughs) Perry received a phone call, just said, if you mess this up, she will die. So not only is he sending him telegram one after the other, he's also made two phone calls at this point. I'm assuming local phone calls, long distance. Do they ever get to that? They weren't able to trace anything. Trace it. Okay. Not the phone calls. Yeah. Apparently nothing. Okay. Perry got into his car and left to meet up with a kidnapper. This time, without the detectives, Perry sat in his car waiting. Perry noticed a car driving down next to him. Mm -hmm. He was not able to see the man's face because it was covered with like a bandana on the lower part of his face and he was pointing Mm -hmm. a shotgun at him. Mm -hmm. Then Perry recognized a familiar voice. Did you bring the money? Perry responded, where is my daughter? Then Perry spotted something covered with a blanket in the passenger seat. The kidnapper pulled back the blanket just enough that Perry saw her face. Okay. He stated that her eyes were open and she was staring blankly forward. Perry passed the money from his car window and threw it to the kidnapper into the passenger side of the kidnapper's Mm -hmm. car. Then the kidnapper drove about a hundred feet forward and dumped something out in the middle of the street and then sped away. Perry got out of his car and ran over to something wrapped up in a blanket. Mm -hmm. When he unwrapped the blanket, he saw her face. She was frozen and unresponsive. Her eyes were unblinking. She had this blank look on her face. He tore the rest of the blanket off of her to reveal his worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. She had been severed just below the navel. Her arms had been cut off, mm. her elbows and her legs. Oh my gosh. Wow. She was dismembered. She was dismembered. Police arrived a couple of minutes later. When they examined the body, they noticed that Marion's eyes had been stitched open and she mm. had makeup on her face to make her appear more alive. Like when he when he lifted the blanket and said, look, here she is. Give me the money. Yeah. Make her look that way. Okay. The autopsy revealed no bruising, no sign of strangulation or asphyxiation. The torso had been disemboweled, cleaned out, and was stuffed with towels. Oh. Yeah. The next day, newspaper-wrapped items laying in the middle of the road were found close by. Somebody just walking on the street mm-hmm. noticed these four random, like, wrapped up meat oh, sitting okay. on the road. Yeah. He decided to open one up to see what was in it and he noticed it was a human arm so he immediately called police the police opened the other three which contained the other arm and her two legs an hour later another horrific discovery was made by hikers it was the section of torso and thighs belonging to marion 
I know. The coroner inspected the body parts and once again did not find any bruising, no evidence of drugs like chloroform were in the body, which led doctors to believe that she was awake during the dismemberment. Oh, poor baby. The report also stated that they found a half-eaten hazelnut wrapped up in paper inside Marion's torso. Very unique clue. Okay, does that have a representation of anything? It's a clue. Okay. But it's a unique one, right? It's weird. Yeah. It's just a weird thing to find. Noted. The reward to catch whoever did this went up to $100,000. Mm-hmm. Detectives located the car in a downtown lot mm-hmm. and they discovered that the car was registered in Arkansas. Arkansas. That's why I was <laughs> from last week. I was like, Arkansas. Arkansas. Fingerprints on the car belong to a 19-year-old man named William Edward Hickman. Who is William Edward Hickman? Who is he, Natalie? Well, he was born February 1st, 1908 in Arkansas. <laughs> Arkansas. He had a normal upbringing. He was smart. He did well in school, but he was very competitive and people said he had a combative attitude. Now, while in college, he met a man named Welby Hunt and they became close friends and not long after that, they started committing small town crimes. The two men stole the gray car and decided to move out to California in December of 1926. Once there, Hickman started working a job as a messenger at the same bank that Perry worked for. While working at the bank, he was arrested for committing check forgery. (laughs) So he was fired, Mm -hmm. but instead of going to jail, he just got probation. Maybe because of his age? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. First time conviction. Yeah. Slap on the wrist. Police searched his apartment and found evidence that he may have left in a big rush. During the search, they did go through the trash can and they found the other half of the eaten hazelnut. Mm. Now that's a big clue, right? That's a huge clue, yeah. I would think so. They'd have to forensically test that hazelnut. (laughs) Make sure it came from the same nut. I I don't know, hazelnuts are pretty small. Yeah. Police showed his picture to Miss Halt and she identified him as being the man who picked up Marion that day. Okay. Perry (laughs) said that he vaguely remembered his face. He recalled a man being arrested for check forgery at Mm -hmm. his bank Mm -hmm. but he doesn't really remember like this guy like he wasn't memorable to him to like remember Mm -mm. physical features you know or anything yeah right so then police posted a wanted picture of hickman and this got national attention detectives from all other states were calling in at this point stating hey he looks like somebody we're looking for apparently the chicago police claimed that hickman was accused of strangling a girl Mm. in pennsylvania police stated hickman matched the description of a robber who shot and killed a gas station attendant and in san diego a couple robbed a pharmacy with him and they said that he He told them he picked up a bottle of chloroform because he had plans for kidnapping and ransom. Wow. The police hunt was on. A report came from Oregon of a man fitting Hickman's description who just stole another car. Then the police from Washington spotted the same stolen car and this time they got him. Mm -hmm. They pulled him over. Hickman had two random people in his car like hitchhikers. The police asked him to step out of the car and the initial search they uncovered two weapons a shotgun the one that maybe Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. he pointed in Perry's Maybe, face. Yeah. And in the glove compartment, they found all of the ransom money. Mm. Hickman then looked at police and stated, I am Edward Hickman. Hickman stated he only committed the crime so he can get enough money to go to college. Oh, Lord. He said he knew Marion Parker because Perry brought her into work all the time. And Marion wasn't the only target. There was another child of another employee that he was about to kidnap and, as well. Uh, not Marjorie. was another child. Not Marjorie. Another child. I mean, not that it would have been better for the Parker family, but it would have been easier to have both girls, especially if you said your dad's been in an accident, but I only want to take one of the girls. He only asked for one of them. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. And a twin. That's what I'm saying. Like a twin. Yeah. So Hickman decided to confess. Hickman <laughs> stated that he staked out Perry's home a couple of nights before. Hickman stated that after he picked up Marion, he took her to see a movie called Figures Don't Lie. And then after they left is when he sent the first telegram. So he didn't even get to his apartment. It's like right after the movies, he sent the telegram. Figures Don't Lie is a 1927 American silent comedy. Mm-hmm. Film stars Esther Ralston, uh, Richard, Arlen, Ford Sterling, Doris Hill, Blanche Payson. I mean, 19... 19- 1927. It's silent? It's a silent film. Yeah, they didn't have... Chances of me watching that are zero to none. tonight. <laughs> Not at all. No. Hickman said sometimes Marion would be tied up with bandages and other times she would be free to move about. Hickman said that he didn't want to murder her initially, but when the kidnapping became national news, he decided he needed to kill her and get the money and get the hell out of there. Mm. Hickman stated Marion was dead before Perry got the first, the last telegram. Yeah. Hickman can confessed that he strapped her to a chair, blindfolded her, and then strangled her. He then undressed her and then moved her unconscious body to the bathtub. Hickman then grabbed his biggest knife from the kitchen and began dismembering her. Hickman confirmed what the coroner suspected and the family's worst nightmare, that she was unconscious, but mm-hmm. she was still alive when he started cutting because of the splatter of the I blood. I was gonna say, it was spraying. Yeah, bloody mess. Her heart was beating. Yeah, it would be pumping. Yeah. Yeah, so it, I mean the the, the heart continues to pump. The blood's yeah. going to continue mm. to... So Hickman tried to plead insanity before trial. He tried to commit suicide twice. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people believe that this was just for attention to prove that he's insane. But the jail psychiatrist determined he was sane. Hickman wrote a letter which reads, The murder of Marion Parker and the horrible, terrible, simply awful mutilation of Marion Parker's helpless body. A separate deed from the kidnapping of Marion Parker. Done in blood with a knife by my own hands on the morning of December 17th, 1927 in the bathtub at the Bellevue Arms Apartments of Los Angeles, California was not meant by me, Edward Hickman, but through me under the guidance and protection and the duty to this great providence for the great work which had been calling me since the age of 12 to perform the safety and security of human rights and liberties in the United States of America. What? What is that? What is that? What is that? And I'm sitting going, is he just trying to appear insane? Is he trying to? Like, yeah, maybe. I'm like, so I don't know, maybe, but nowhere, at no point in time had there ever been a political, like, he was all about human rights and liberties. (laughs) There'd been like no political link whatsoever and then pulls it out of his ass to be like, maybe he was trying to appear out of his mind. He was out of his mind, but not, you know. The trial began on January 26, 1928. After just half an hour of deliberations, a jury found Hickman both sane and guilty. (laughs) A judge ordered his execution by hanging on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. 
Bye. Bye. Rest in hell. Rest in hell. Fun fact, the HBO series Perry Mason. Have you ever seen it? The HBO series? Like not the old school, the newer one? 2020. Yeah. HBO Perry mm-hmm. Mason. Maybe it's a limited series, but it's based mm-hmm. on this case. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Come to me, Google. I can't wait to watch it. Okay. I, I so I am familiar with this because it, it the actor that the actor that plays Perry Mason is Matthew Reese mm-hmm. or Rice, and he was on the Americans. He was the husband on the Americans. Oh. So I recognize like that that the face okay. of the actor. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that. But that's my story and what my, the poor murder yeah. of Marion Parker. I'm sorry. Boop. Rest in peace. I hate it. There's nothing to like about it. It is terrible. That's and I feel bad for the, the Parker family. They went through hell so just to find out that their worst nightmare came true. Just terrible. Yeah. yeah no, I hate it. Not. But crime isn't pretty. It's pretty ugly. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know anything about that until, like I said, I was looking for some of the ransom notes slash kidnappings, you know, to look at for, mm-hmm. to do the introduction on for you. But yeah. other than that, I had no idea. And it's, I know. Isn't it, girl, isn't, isn't it crazy? crazy? It's been like 100 years. Wow. Almost 100 wow. years ago. The 1920s, the mm. Roaring 20s was 100 years ago. Oh, my God. Does that put it in perspective? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but good. Thank you for doing that story. I, I didn't know anything about it. And it just goes, I mean, a couple things you can, you can take from it, obviously crime doesn't pay crime is ugly mm-hmm. don't do it yeah there's a lot of things that have come from that and, and you can kind of look put it in perspective as to how far we've come when it comes to these types of crimes but then also i mean dismemberments are, are uh, a thing in itself but yeah. being able to forensically link you know a lot of the hurdles that some of the legal system has to go through in order to convict somebody yeah there's a lot of things that have been that have happened in the last hundred years and how sim- simple maybe at that time that he thought he would have been able to get away with it but at the i mean one you you wouldn't use your own car he stole that car but it was registered to him wasn't it no he stole it oh okay what bothers me is that he was in control the whole time like he was in control the police were following his instruction parker was following his instructions he had all the cards and he still decided to cut her up why like why that that is just you could have taken the money i mean even if you did use chloroform made her pass out maybe she wasn't coherent maybe she was you know unconscious the whole time yeah you didn't have to kill her no have to kill the poor girl no well because we don't leave you hanging more information on this case there'll be after that crime chat only available on our patreon and don't forget to follow us on all of our socials crime chat with nat and cat on facebook Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. See what we got going on. Remember, Crime Chat Nat and Cat, when you become a VIP chatter to our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, and free merch. And check out some merch in the works. Yes, and be sure to check out the next episode. We're going to be featuring a story kind of in my neck of the woods from Columbia, South Carolina. South Carolina? Yeah. <laughs> a woman went missing. After a U2 concert, and her case is still unsolved today. It's been like 30 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. You don't want to miss it. Yep. We'll see you next time, chatters. Bye. Bye.